Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 4 this morning. Mentioned last Sunday night I was going to be uh, preaching down at the Bible conference in Greenville, and and so thanks for those who prayed, and uh, it was good to be on campus and see our students down there, and a lot of former staff member. I just to mention this and update-wise, uh, so Ed Flower had a battle with cancer, and I uh, got to talk for a while with Ed, and he's doing really well, and uh, very thankful, uh, and just like when, when uh, Pearson Johnson was down uh, they have expressed on multiple occasions gratitude for the folks here that were praying for them and lifting them up before the Lord. So we thank you for that. I want to thank you on the on his behalf and also have you rejoice with him. Ages ago, when I was a student in college uh, attending Bible conference, uh, one year uh, some guys I knew had a, a very questionable judgment call uh, to be rating all of the speakers, which is always sort of like a, a reminder when I come back to preach that there are people out there like that. Uh, but they, you know, you do in the, uh, in the uh, Olympics or like the slam dunk competition, right? Someone preaches and then they would rank them, right? They would give them ratings. And, and I remember uh, particularly one afternoon uh, service where the pastor of one of my good friends was the preacher. And the afternoon session is always a tough, tough slot anyway. And, and um, I'm sure he wished he would have navigated it better. I'll put it that way. Uh, but they gave him horrible rankings. And I remember my, my friend just being dejected. I mean, this is his pastor. And, and they're acting like, like in the middle of his backflip, he just laid out flat and crashed. That's the kind of, ratings they were giving him. And, and it was, it was actually, uh, it was both irritating and educating as a future preacher and pastor, right? To, to recognize, uh, that, that, um, that kind of mindset isn't actually a minority. Now people don't usually hold up rating signs, right? But my guess is probably uh, probably more often than not, people are are at least internally going, or, or you know, because they're 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 gauging it. It's it's actually just sort of the 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 instinctive kind of reflex to evaluate, and and that's just that's just reality. But it clearly can morph into something worse than that which is what Paul's dealing with at Corinth. It actually was at the point where, well, I'll take Paul, skip those other guys. I'll take Apollos, not, not me, I'm taking Apollos. And all of a sudden their, their appraisal or assessment of God's servants had become, uh, had become a point of division and conflict and actually reflected something seriously wrong in their own hearts, right? Because now they had, they had gone from, from people who were to profit from the ministry of these servants to people who felt like they were more like the panel at some talent show 
or people who, who had the right to pass judgment on God's servants in a way that was actually not their privilege. And what Paul's going to do in the passage we're going to look at this morning is actually what we often have to do, right? Because he, he has spent chapter three saying, these are just servants, right? They're, they're servants, not the master. They aren't the point. God is. God's work is. And then the last thing he says to them is, when you say I'm of one of them, you're sort of selling yourself short because they all belong to you. In other words, in some ways, they're your servants too. But Paul, it's almost as if, and that's part of the beauty of the dynamic of Scripture, Paul automatically starts to reel that in a little bit. Because when someone someone hears, they're your servant, then you could actually feel right about going, well, that servant gets a 4.5, right? I'm going to give him two stars because you're judging your servant. But Paul reels it back in and gets them to see, no, when I said they all belong to you, it's because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God that it's actually not putting you in the place of being the master. It's actually putting in the proper perspective of God and his work through Christ. And they are servants of, of him. So pick it up in verse one of chapter four, please. And we'll read the first five verses this morning. Let a man or person regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So Paul wants to reaffirm the role of servant, yet challenges their wrong thinking about whom they serve. Right? They're actually Christ servants. So it, it's not the Corinthians to whom they will ultimately be accountable. And, and they are Christ servants, not the Corinthians. Therefore, the Corinthians should stop passing judgment on them. That's, that's where he's driving with this. And he moves there in really sort of three steps. The first step of, of which is in verses one and two to help us understand some principles about ministry for these servants. And the first principle is in verse one about the nature of ministry. Notice he says, let a person regard us or actually think about us in this way as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. So he he's trying to, as he's been all the way through the first three chapters, trying to change the way in which they're thinking or viewing what's going on. So listen, instead of you thinking like you are, 
here's the way you ought to think about us. You should regard us in this way. And he emphasizes first their position as servants of Christ. Uh, the word that's used here is a word, uh, and this I'm actually going to I'm going to tell you how some people talk about it, and 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 they're they're not handling it correctly. So I'm doing it this way. So I don't usually uh, mention Greek words, but this word is actually two Greek words you put together, and it means under rower. And it was used originally of the slaves down in the bottom of a ship that were the sort of the bottom line rowers. And so it clearly had an original meaning of a pretty, uh, pretty lowly kind of servant. And so sometimes you'll hear that, you'll hear that stressed, right? All we are is under rowers and, and focus on that. The problem is, is like most words, they develop over time. And this word's actually used in the gospels of people who are over entire works of a master, right? So they were no longer the lowest level of servant at all. They were actually people who had a bunch of responsibility. So by the time Paul's using it, he's not saying, I'm just a galley slave, right? I'm just this under rower. He's simply saying, I'm under authority, right? They're a servant of Christ. And they're under Christ's authority, but because they're servants of Christ, they're actually over some responsibility. It's not intended to treat them as if they're nothing, but to simply emphasize that their position is under Christ over the responsibilities given to them by Christ. They are servants of Christ. Christ is the one who has assigned the task, he said back in chapter 3, and they need to take their place there. And then he says, and stewards of the mysteries of God. And I think that emphasizes their responsibility. A steward is someone who is entrusted with something and accountable to someone, right? So a, a steward has received something from someone and is actually accountable to that someone. And I've, I've, I've illustrated this before, and 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 I think most of us recognize it, right? If you're if you were a snowbird, you wouldn't probably be here. Hello, snowbirds online, right? But you leave, and you entrust uh, the care of your house to somebody, right? You 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 are. I mean, we don't do it formally anymore, but you're you're sort of appointing them to be the steward of your property. You make sure the pipes don't freeze. Make sure the sidewalk and driveway get get uh, cleaned off if it snows. Uh, make sure that that bills are taken care of if everything's coming. Right? We 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 talk about that concept. We know that concept. That's exactly what this is. Paul's saying you should regard us as stewards who have been entrusted by someone with something, and and we're going to end up being accountable. And he tells us what the something is in this text. Notice he says we're stewards of the mysteries of God. And that, uh, that actually would uh, echo for us what he talked about in chapter 2. Look back to chapter 2 and start in verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery 
the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So he's already mentioned the word mystery. And when we looked at it there, I said, this isn't a mystery the way that we tend to define mystery, something that we still haven't figured out. But this was something that was hidden and has been revealed. That's why he says, the hidden wisdom which God proclaimed before the the ages, that's actually the wisdom that's now been entrusted. So the revelation of God's wisdom in Christ has been entrusted to Paul, and he's a steward of it. He's supposed to carry out the responsibility that comes with that. In fact, chapter three of the book of Ephesians, he says that that's actually a sort of a unique characteristic of his role, that he has been given this stewardship about the mystery that God was now joining both Jew and Gentile into one body, the church. And that was not revealed in previous generations, but now has been through the apostles and prophets. So there's a new work that God is doing that is a revelation of God's wisdom that has now been revealed to his people And Paul's saying, we were stewards of that. We were entrusted with this truth from God so that we would carry it out. Go back into chapter four, because I think it's important for us to see. Uh, Look at verse six, because I think it's, it's a good thing to notice here. He says, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. You know why it's important to see Apollos there? It's because we might go, well, stewards of the mysteries, that's just the apostles then. But Paul's saying, no, I'm applying this to myself and to Apollos. So it actually was something that applied beyond the apostles to people who were speaking the truth of God. They were proclaimers of this message. Like he says in chapter three, we're just servants of God who have been given assignments and we're supposed to carry those out. And so so he's saying really about the servant of Christ, that he's a steward of these mysteries. He's been entrusted with them. And so he needs to carry out that work. And I would, I, I think uh, I can safely expand this based on what we know of stewardship. For instance, in Titus chapter one and, and verse seven, those who are pastors are called God's steward. Right? They're given a stewardship with regard to the ministry within the church. In first Peter chapter four, verse 10, as each has received the gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That, that all believers have been, if you go back to my sort of uh, bland, generic way of saying it, have been entrusted with something from someone and they will be accountable to that someone. Right? Every one of us, if we know Christ, actually have been entrusted with something and we're to be stewards of it. We're supposed to exercise that stewardship carefully because it's, it's a, uh, a task, a responsibility given to us by our Lord. So that leads us then to verse two, what the standard is. And this is the second principle. Notice in verse two, it's not just the nature of ministry in verse one, it's the standard for it, verse two. 
In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So he expands it out to a general principle about stewardship and and says that they should be found trustworthy or when examined, they should be found to have been faithful or trustworthy. That, That the stewardship implies some responsibility and some accountability for that. Right, go back to my watch, watch your house scenario. Right, let's say, you know, uh, unbeknownst to the person you've asked to take care of your property, you had to come back home for something, maybe take care of something back up here in, in Michigan and you fly into town and you pull up to your house and, and there's, you know, three inches of snow on the driveway and the sidewalk and the porch, and you know it hasn't snowed in, in a week. So, so the thing you'd ask them to do, they've not done. You sort of march your way through, go to grab the door handle, hoping you're going to unlock it, and you find it's unlocked. And you come in the house, and you see the, the floor covered in fluid because your pipes froze. Would you go, that was a faithful steward. That was a trustworthy person. No, you'd, you'd go, we, we, I, I told you what I needed you to do. You accepted that responsibility. Here was the simple standard for you. Were you trustworthy with it? Did you fulfill the thing that you were uh, entrusted with? Did you take care of that? That's what Paul's saying is the standard. And, and so you, you need to realize, we need to realize that that's not a fuzzy abstract concept, right? If that person said to you, well, in my heart, I meant to shovel the walk. And in my heart, I meant to do, my intent was good, (laughs) you'd go, like, yeah, a lot of good that did me. You had a responsibility. And you need to fulfill that responsibility to be faithful. Faithful is not just a disposition. Faithful actually is the appropriate action for the responsibility. And, and now the thing that, that we'd have to do is not walk away from that and, and also though guard ourselves against the tendency, right? The tendency to measure things by visible success or personal preference, right? The, the Corinthians like some of the Corinthians liked Apollos, no doubt, because he was more eloquent than Paul and they were used to more eloquent speakers, right? They loved the, the, the proclamation of the Greek sophists. They, they could stand and be wowed by the rhetoric that they would use and the impressive nature of it. And so they, they're like, that's my guy. That's my guy. Right? And, and the issue wasn't, wasn't at the, Apollos was unfaithful. It was Apollos was faithfully doing the thing that he was supposed to do. The standard wasn't going to be his eloquence. It was going to be his faithfulness. 
And Paul was much less impressive. Right? He, is, he doesn't look good. We know that from the scriptures. He seems not to sound good. Right? Everywhere he goes, people are trying to, you know, trying to kill him. He, he was not going to be on the top 10 list of most attractive, uh, popular speakers. And so some people seem to have been embarrassed about Paul. Right? His letters are strong, but his presence is weak. Right? They, they actually were critical of him. And Paul says, no, the, the standard isn't what you're thinking it is. It is, have I done the thing that I was entrusted by Christ to do? That's, that's the point for him. The nature of ministry is servants to Christ and the responsibility is stewardship. So the standard is faithfulness. And so it would do us well to periodically remind ourselves of that. If, if trustworthiness is what's sought in stewards, is that what we look for? Right? Is that, if that's what God wants, is that what we look for? Is, is that actually what we honor or do we have a tendency to, to, uh, imbibe the spirit of our culture, which is more concerned about celebrity kinds of things than, than stewardship kinds of things, right? Do we, do we, uh, have the tendency to substitute the names that are in the scripture with the names of, of whoever happens to have the biggest radio ministry or happens to write the most popular books or draws the most people to the conference, right? Because the minute we do that, we start to confuse popularity with faithfulness because it, it doesn't work as a corollary. Right? Jonah had enormous visible results. Isaiah was told, you're going to go preach to people who won't listen. How'd you like to get that assignment? You're going to spend your whole life preaching to people who have ears but can't hear and eyes and can't see. And you know what in American Christianity? The conference speaker would be Jonah. Come here, the man that had the world's greatest revival. And Isaiah would be going like, you need to listen to this guy, Isaiah. And in God's eyes, it would be just reversed. Right? It would be just reversed because Isaiah was faithful to the task he was given. And, and Jonah was reluctantly obedient. Right? He didn't go when he was told to go. And after he did it, he wasn't happy about it, right? I knew this was going to happen, and I didn't want this to happen, right? We, we need to realize the tendency for us to have this thing potentially terribly out of whack compared to the principles that, that God has established for us. And, and that was their problem, too. Look at verses 3 and 4, because we find out what's going on in what Paul describes about his response here. Verse three, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you 
or be fi- or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I'm not conscious of anything. I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So Paul here, uh, he handles their critical evaluation of him by the statements that he's making here, right? Because clearly. Uh, Paul's writing this in a context where there are some people who are actively rejecting him and speaking against him. Right? He, he, he's going to say at the end of this chapter that, that there are arrogant people who are opposing him. So, so it's not like this is not a, like just a hypothetical conversation about how should you feel about ministry? This is Paul knowing that there are people who are actively opposed to him and speaking things against him. And, and he has told us these first two principles because they're the basis for him now making the statements that he's going to make, right? My position is as a servant of Christ and my responsibility is to be a stewards of the mysteries of God. And the, the, the standard for me is faithfulness or trustworthy. So he turns to three and four. And the first thing, he, first thing he points out is the insignificance of human evaluation, the insignificance of it. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined or judged by you. So, so again, here's, I mean, I think one of the most, uh, important truths we can ever grasp, right? People's judgment of us is a very small thing, right? Paul, Paul's saying it, it's, it's, it's almost inconsequential. It is insignificant that I am being judged by you in this way. And notice he extends it out or by any human court. So he wants, he wants them to know this isn't just an anti-Corinthian thing, right? I mean, because it could be like that. You, there's somebody that doesn't like you and they're speaking evil against you and you don't like them either. And so you go, I don't care what you think. This isn't that. Paul loves these people. He does really care about them. I'm certain he would prefer that they like him but them passing judgment on his ministry says, that's a small thing. In fact, it's not just a small thing if you do it. It's a small thing if any human court does it. Why? Why would it be a small thing? Because they're servants of Christ, stewards of God's mysteries. It's a small thing if any human court does it. And then just to make sure we know he's not just being arrogant, look what he says at the end of verse 3. In fact, I do not even examine myself. It's, it applies to them. It applies to all human courts and even to himself. So this is not some kind of arrogant or radical independence where he goes, the only thing that matters is what I think about me. And that's the spirit of our day. Right? I don't care what you think. I don't care what anyone thinks. The only thing that matters is what I think. When I look in the mirror, I need to think this. And Paul says, it's not even my opinion that matters. Because he didn't say, I'm Paul's servant and I'm a steward of Paul's mysteries. He says, I'm a servant of Christ 
and I'm a steward of God's mysteries. So Paul's assessment isn't the answer. This isn't some kind of, you know, I mean, our, our culture just loves this, right? I mean, I, I, and, and this is probably, clearly would be reflecting my age, but I kept, you know, I keep hearing this, like, you can't please everyone. So what? You got to please yourself, right? Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be. Or I did it my way. Right? That's the, those are the anthems of our culture. You can't, you can't satisfy anybody around you. So all you can do is you satisfy yourself. You please yourself. You do it your way. Because the big ticket in our culture is to be able to say, I did it my way. And Paul's like, no, that's, that's not actually it. It was a clear recognition by Paul that it is, in fact, not human appraisal but human appraisal compared to God's, right? Whoever, whomever we are ultimately trying to please, the scriptures say, becomes our master. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, if I seek to please men, then I am not the servant of Christ. Right? So, so if he let himself actually become subject to the appraisal of people, and try to have his eye set on pleasing them, then he would have departed from pleasing Christ. Right? So he had to keep his eye on that focal point. It's insignificant. I mean, when, when, when we stand before Jesus Christ to give an account of ourselves, it will not matter what the press clipping said. Right? It, it, it really won't matter how many trophies you have on your, your shelf, how many plaques you have because they want to give you something for it. Right? Those, I'm not saying those things are, I actually, I walked around this morning because I've got, I've got, I've got things from all over the world where people, they, they just expressed their gratitude and said, such and such, you did this, da, 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 you know, and, and I don't throw them away. I mean, they're, they're tucked back in my library up on the shelf because I, I want to respect their respect. But boy, if, if I made the measure of my life that, then it would necessarily follow that I would do more to try to get that. Right? Because if that's what made my life count was getting those kinds of accolades then you start to bend your life to get those accolades. But when what counts is not tied to that, then you're in the position to do what Jesus called us to do and what we've been given the task to do. It's almost as if Paul, when he says, I do not even examine myself, he has to sort of throw a caveat in there because look at verse 4. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted. And so he moves from the insignificance of human examination to the inconclusiveness of self-examination, right? Because he's not wanting to say, I don't even examine myself. I just do whatever I want to do. He's saying, I don't know anything against myself. To my knowledge, I have, I have sought to do what's right, and I think Paul would probably said, and made amends when I haven't, right? So he's not claiming perfection here, 
He's simply saying he's not his own judge. Right? Look at those words in there. I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. The servant is accountable to his master and a steward is accountable to the owner. Paul, therefore, is accountable to God, to Christ. So all other judgments are meaningless, even his own. Now, let me be clear. Paul clearly is in favor of a good conscience. Right? He actually tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that that's the, actually the goal of God's word. The goal of the commandment is a good conscience. Paul wants to serve with a good conscience. He wants believers to follow Christ with a good conscience. He's not in any way saying, just sort of forget about your conscience. What he's saying, though, is when it comes down to the final judgment, it's actually not going to be your conscience that's on the judgment seat. Right, so you could go up, I don't know anything against myself. And Paul says, but I'm not acquitted because of that. My, my good conscience could be wrong. You realize that, right? The conscience is not infallible or inerrant. Conscience operates by the standard that's been given to it, and sometimes it has a, a bad standard. Right? The, the reality of it is we spend our entire lives, once we've come to know Christ, with the work of God to shape and correct and teach our conscience, and we shouldn't violate our conscience, but we cannot think that our conscience is supreme. It's the Word of God that's supreme. It's God who is ultimately the one who will evaluate our service for him. It's not our conscience because our hearts are deceptive. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful. Who can know it? And it is quite possible for you to be thinking that what you're doing is okay and you think it's okay because you've deceived yourself. Because sin is deceptive. We should have far less confidence in our own conscience and much more submission to the authority of God's word. Right? That we, we submit ourselves to the truth of it. And in fact, our knowledge is limited. Right? I, uh, I would like to think I know myself well but I certainly don't know myself as well as God does, right? I have a limited ability to assess myself. Therefore, my limited ability cannot be the final standard. It actually has to be God in his examination. And that leads us to the end of verse four, right? He says, I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So the importance of the Lord's examination, that a servant, as I said, is accountable to his master and a steward to the owner. And Paul has that accountability to the master, to the owner. And all other judgments, all other judgments are 
insignificant compared to his. Right? They really don't matter when you put them in relationship to God. Because think even about the, the passages we've looked at so far. In chapter three, he talks about people who are gold, uh, building with gold, silver, and precious stones, and people are, get, are building with wood, hay, and stubble. Do you realize it is quite possible to build with wood, hay, and stubble and have everybody think it's wonderful. And then it stands the assessment of God and it's all burned up. Because that's what he talks about. He says, the day will declare it. It's not the present evaluation that is most significant. It's the final evaluation. It's the Lord's evaluation that matters. I mean, what a... What a terrible thing it would be to spend your entire life chasing the approval of people at the cost, at the cost of the approval of Jesus when it comes to your service. And that's what Paul's saying, because remember the issues. They want them to take the offensive message of the cross and, and finesse it so it's more attractive, it's more successful. And Paul says, you can't do that. So if he actually bent to their desires, he might have gained their approval and found a happier relationship with the Corinthians. But one day when he stands before his Lord, it's going to be up in smoke. What a foolish trade-off. Right? If I, if I said to you, hey, listen, if you'll do X, Y, and Z for the next six months, I will give you everything you want. And then at the end of those six months, you're going to jail. You go, well, I'm not so sure that's smart. Right? Or, or at the end of the six months, everything that you have will be taken away. Right? We'd look at that and go, what a, what a foolish trade-off that would be. So let's say you could be popular for the next 40 years. Or you can have reward in heaven for all of eternity, which, which would you choose? Well, in abstract, we'd all go heaven, heaven. But when, when people look at us sideways, speak about us harshly, speak to us harshly, the little traitor in our heart starts to go, boy, that matters. <laughs> that matters. And and Paul's saying, listen, he, he, he doesn't consider the evaluation of humans to be significant. He doesn't consider his own evaluation to be conclusive. The one that matters to him is the Lord's. Now, let me, let me just, we have to do this because um, there's all kinds of stuff that's said, right? So make sure you understand what's going on here. This is the servant of the Lord. Right? This isn't, he's not saying at this examination, we'll find out if I'm the Lord's servant. Right? So it, you've got to understand the biblical pattern that sometimes we talk about is indicative to imperative, that is who we are and then what we're commanded to do. Right? Paul is saying, 
I am a servant of the Lord. So his relationship with the Lord is rock solid. He's the Lord's. He, he has actually told them already that the answer for his soul and for salvation is in the cross of Christ, not in his works. So Paul's not talking about in this examination that he's going to step up before God and it's going to be, you know, either you're going to be led into heaven or you're going to send off to hell. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about what he talked about in chapter three, that, that we're building on the foundation of Christ and we need to build according to the master. Because if you choose to build contrary to it, you will be saved, but your work will be consumed. Right? He's, he's talking about the fact that when you do know Christ, You have been accepted by God on the basis of the merits of Christ. This is not about whether or not you're going to be accepted or rejected in terms of eternity. This is, this is whether or not your life has been lived to be pleasing to the Lord. Did you respond to the grace of God in a way that showed that he mattered to you more than the approval of people? that you actually believe his promises as most. And the, the constant threat, and, and hopefully I don't say it the same way all the time, but I, keep, I come back to it regularly because we, we just sort of live and move inside of a psychologized world that actually has, has shifted the focus from the God we love to us. And, and the idea then that I might be doing something displeasing to God is actually people are trying to erase that out of their Bibles. Oh, God, you're saved in Christ and he's absolutely, thoroughly, completely pleased with you. He sees you only and always in positive regard. And here's what I'd say to you. Find one verse of scripture that says that about how we live our lives for Christ. I mean, do you believe that God disciplines his children? Doesn't the scripture say if he loves us, he disciplines us? That must mean he knows that there are things that need to change in our lives. Right, he's doing it, the scriptures say, so that we can be partakers of his righteousness, that we can share in those things. He, he knows we're at point A and he wants to move us to point B. God doesn't not see that. He doesn't kick us out of his family for it though. Because my acceptance with God isn't based on my psychological feeling about it. It's a legal reality. I am guilty. And God has said, not guilty in Christ. And that verdict will never be reversed, right? All my sins have been paid for. Christ died so that I could be declared righteous in him. That is absolute rock solid. And I went from being far off to being brought near. It's relational. God is never going to kick me out of his family. I'm his. He is mine. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. All of those things are true, but you don't turn around and go, so I can just do whatever I want now. If I choose to serve God, fine. If I 
don't choose to serve God, fine. If I dabble in a little sin, fine. If I, if I try not to sin, fine. It, none of it matters. Well, where did you get that? I mean, do you remember Jesus saying that there would come a time where the master would look at the servant and say, well done, good and faithful servant? Doesn't that presuppose that the master actually is watching what the servant's doing? And the one who's been faithful in a little is given more responsibility? I mean, isn't there some desire, ambition in our heart to do what is pleasing to the Lord? I mean, it's a, it's a misuse and abuse of the doctrine of justification to turn it into an excuse not to serve Christ faithfully. It's required in stewards that they be faithful or trustworthy. God's grace is never the basis for us being unfaithful. Well, it doesn't matter. Grace. That's not the way the scriptures talk at all. And Paul knew that they could think he's the greatest thing since, I started to say sliced bread. It wasn't then. The greatest thing since leavened bread. I don't know, whatever. They could have thought he's wonderful. But if he betrayed his commitment to Christ, his service would prove unprofitable. And what a shallow trade that would be. He could arrogantly defend himself on his own merits. I don't know anything. Listen, I know my conscience is good. I'm doing what's right. And he knew that that wasn't going to wash at the day because the Lord is the one who examines him. That's where he has to keep his eyes. That's what he has to be focused on. That's what they need to be focused on. So here comes the prohibition in verse five. Therefore, or on the basis of what he said in verses one through four, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. There's the responsibility that he gives them. They've been passing judgment. In fact, it, it, he places the, the negative here in a, an emphatic kind of position where you could, you could, I think, make a case for him saying, therefore, stop passing judgment. Right? You've been doing this. Stop doing it. This is not the way of Christ. Stop passing judgment. And, and again, I'd say uh, this clearly is within certain parameters, right? This is the servants of the Lord, the stewards of God's mysteries. And it's important for us in that because this is chapter four. In chapter five, he's going to tell them to judge some member of the assembly who's living as if they're a lost person. And he says, it's our job to judge inside the church, remove that man. Right, So he's not here saying, don't exercise any judgment. He's saying, don't exercise unrighteous judgment. There is, there is within the circle of responsibility before God, a place where we have no right to sit in judgment on. So he says, stop, stop doing that. And in fact, it's probably best to see it as having to do with interior kinds of things. Look down in the middle of the verse, it says, Bring to light things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of hearts, right? So, so he's after a kind of judgment, which sometimes we're unfortunately prone to do, and that is to pass judgment on the motives of people. 
right? So here's, here's Apollos and Paul and Cephas, and they're passing judgment on their ministries. And it seems to be that they're, they're passing a judgment that goes deeper than what they can observe. There are things hidden that only God can bring to the surface, right? Because let's think about the way it could go. You know, Apollos is eloquent. And he actually, like, he, he's a little closer to what they would like. And you know what the I'm of Paul people are probably doing? Well, Apollos just wants to make a name for himself. He's trying to court the favor of people. That's why he's so eloquent, right? And, and, and the Apollos people are looking over at Paul. Well, Paul just is an authority freak, right? He just wants to be in charge. He doesn't want anybody to take some of the glory away from him. So they're going, Paul's just a jealous little man. They think they know the heart of Paul, right? And, and it's one of the horrible things that we're inclined to do is to think that we can actually read the hearts of people. And, and Paul is saying, you need to stop that, right? You need to stop trying to be God in this way and recognize that these are God's servants and they're gonna give an account to God for it. And that's what it ought to be. So he gives two reasons for why they should stop this judgment. And the first is there will be an appointed examination. Look at what it says. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. So, so he, he says, listen, there's gonna be a judgment. Right. And, and you just need to, you need to hand it over to the Lord. Right. I mean, I, I actually, a few weeks ago, I was going through some old correspondence because I, I, this, I mean, this, this text is, is been, I think is one of, I mean, it's a very important one to me because it really, I think is an important framework. Right. And there have probably been at least a half dozen letters over time with people outside of our church who are saying something about us. And I'll usually say something like this. I'll say, I think we both know the one to whom we're going to give an account is the Lord. And personally, I'm thankful for that because I wouldn't want to be on the judgment seat for you and I wouldn't want you on the judgment seat for me. I'm willing to entrust this to the Lord and the day will reveal, right? That's the way we have to live. People are not always going to be happy with the decisions that you have made because you believe the Bible says this is the way we have to do it. And at the end of the day, Jesus is going to look into all of it. That day's coming. A lot of us need to be aware of the fact that that day's coming. It would change the way we live now. And it would also take off some of the pressure of trying to make certain that the court today gives you good, favorable reviews, right? The reality of it is, it doesn't matter what the reviews are right now. What matters is the day. There's an appointed examination coming and notice it's gonna be accurate. He will bring to light, he will disclose. God knows the heart. God knows everything. Right? And, 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 and just like Jesus, when he was reviled and he was spoken against, it says he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. 
right? We have to be ready to say, Lord, you know all things. I'll put this in your hands. And, and to the best of my ability, I'm going to seek to live as a servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries, being faithful, knowing that you know all things. And that you're my master and you're a good master. Because look at the last part of the verse, right? Then each man's praise will come to him from God. The expectation of Paul is that a faithful servant will hear from God, well done. He, he expects that, right? He knows that it's God who will be doing the assessment and the God before, him, before whom he will stand, the, the Lord who died for him actually has his best interest in heart. He knows that there will be praise from God. And so he wants to live for that instead of chasing after the fickle approval of people. Right? Because it doesn't take much for tides to turn among humans. <laughs> but there's steady, steady confidence in the graciousness of Jesus Christ. So when we think about a passage like this, I hope we'll fight. Uh, and this is just a minor note on it, but one I would really hit is we need to fight the false idea of a sovereign conscience, right? Just because your conscience doesn't bother you is not the final answer. Go to the word, go to the scriptures, right? Make certain that you can say the choice that I'm making is because I have warrant for it in the scriptures, I'm doing this because I believe this is what God wants, not a sort of carelessness about it, right? What does God want from your life? Let that rule it. We need to fight against the celebrity culture that passes judgment on Christ's servants and elevates some so that they can do no wrong. I mean, we, we just, it, it's always amazing to me that when somebody becomes big, they're almost like they're too big to be wrong ever. And they could say or do something really foolish and are wrong and people will defend it no matter what. Which means they've elevated that person over God. Right, they've elevated that person over God. The reality is we can't, we can't let that be the case in our heart. We can't let the fear of people drive us away from the master's rightful rule over us. And this is going to be more and more important as the, the culture around us goes farther and farther away. Because if we actually stay anchored to the truth of God, we are going to be farther and farther out of step with what's approved by our culture. And it's not just going to be that they disagree with us. They're going to think that we're somehow hateful or bigoted to, to believe what the Bible says, to just take God at his word. And if we're hooked into the acceptance of people, it's going to be hard to just stand there. It's going to be hard because there's going to be too much in your heart that has spent its day chasing after gaining that approval. And people will start to whittle away at the authority of God. 
They'll start to find halfway houses of compromise, which are actually abandoning the truth. We need to remember there's coming a day when we're going to stand before Jesus and he's not going to ask you, how well-liked were you? How popular were you? How, how, how big of an influencer were you? He's going to say, I gave you my mysteries. Were you trustworthy with them? Were you faithful? That's what he's going to want from us. That's what he's after. And we need to recognize that, that defining ministry sec- success on our own terms versus God's is a dangerous, dangerous pathway. The reality of it is, if we get imbalanced in this, in our, in our day, the language of identity that excludes responsibility, then we've drifted from obedience. If we understand who we are, servants of the Lord, stewards of the mystery, then we'll go, so what responsibilities flow out of that? We won't abandon those. We'll embrace them. We'll say, listen, this is what God wants us to do. If if we really understand the cross, then we will be drawn toward the Christ. And we will want to honor him more than anyone or anything because he died for us. So we want to live for him. We want to live for him. Let's pray together, please. Father, please help us to keep our eye set on our Lord. What he did so that we might have life and and that one day we're going to see him. And would you deepen, make deep in our heart the desire to be found faithful, to present our lives and all of our service to him as an expression of worship that we wanted to make him known and have his glory and grace displayed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.